Hello, Concordia family. Welcome once again. Today is Wednesday, May 20th. It's so great to be with you as we continue taking a look at uh, the tabernacle and the pieces of the tabernacle as a reminder of a God who desires to dwell with us. And that is a remarkable thing, isn't it? Uh, yes, that God is, is with us always, of course, but, but also that we are invited to commune with the living God, us, in all of our mess, in all of our sinful rebellion, in all of our brokenness, in all of it, because he cleanses with a gracious flood. And so as we start together today, I thought it would be good to be reminded of, of his invitation of grace and mercy. As we sing the song, Today Your Mercy Calls Us, a link has been provided to a PDF with the lyric sheet, as well as a listing of scriptures that you can follow along with in the midst of the Bible study today. So you can click on that now. Now we join Professor C.J. Armstrong as he continues in our series of the Tabernacle with a look at the Bronze Basin. Good morning. How are you today? 
Oh, really? Really? How are you? <laughs> it's a little early for me because I'm on sabbatical. It's been a wonderful thing to, to come back and uh, serve in, in various ways this term and today in uh, leading chapel. And uh, we want to get right into the word to uh, uh, get our, our meditative uh, juices flowing. I'd invite you to turn in the hymnal that's in front of you to the book of Psalms. It's in the front part of the hymnal. Uh, we're going to look at Psalm 24 as a template for thinking about what we're going to be dealing with with the bronze basin. I love this series. You know, how is the tabernacle uh, a, a reference or uh, a shadow of the things to come as uh, the, the Lord speaks through his apostles, especially in the book of Hebrews? Uh, the, the tabernacle was great, and Jesus is greater. The priesthood is big, Jesus is bigger. Moses, uh, a servant in all God's house, but Jesus, the Son, he is the house. He is our Sabbath rest. He is our Lord. And so all the scriptures speak of Jesus, even this one, Psalm 24. Let's uh, uh, read this together. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Dear friends in Christ, when we think about tabernacle and all the elements of the tabernacle, one of the easy ways to go is to think about, well, how is Jesus like a bronze basin? Which is about as productive as saying, well, how is a raven like a writing desk? As uh, the Mad Hatter asked Alice in that chapter of the the Mad Tea Party. I say that because I saw Carrie Tom uh, right here. I know that we... Uh, share a joy of Alice. How is a raven like a a writing desk actually has some good answers, but uh, Lewis Carroll didn't intend for it to to have some right answers. For example, they both produce notes, and they're a little bit flat, right? But uh, you look at a basin, you look at Jesus, and you say, well, well, we'll have to do a little bit more with that to to get uh, some kind of, of referent matching, but that's not the purpose of proclamation. It's certainly not the purpose of the scripture is to uh, uh, make these uh, uh, analogies uh, hold water all the time. In fact, if we want to do that, the better place to go is to understand that Jesus is the tabernacle, as Hebrews talks about, the fulfillment of all of the promises and all of the commands. 
that the Lord gave to all of his Old Testament community. Because, dear friends in Christ, the purpose of all of Scripture is to point you to your sin and to point out your Savior, to drive you to despair and to drive you to the doctor who's got the cure. So it was for the Israelites who saw all of the elements of the tabernacle and the temple some on a weekly or even on a daily basis, the holy things of God that God commanded Moses and the generations who came after him to craft with care, to keep holy, to drive his holy people to relationship with him, despairing of their sin and driving to the only doctor with the cure, the priesthood that God had established. These were not merely ceremonials, as if they were metaphors or signs of a reality or of a a deeper signified thing. These were not some kind of backward people with a primitive religion just waiting to die out in obsolescence as we made way for a more scientifically enlightened age. That would be ridiculous. No. These were the very ways that God in Christ communed with people sanctified them, that is, made them holy, their spaces and their places, their times and their seasons, their bodies and minds and their community made holy. God was truly with his people, revealing himself through means, hiding in, with, and under the lampstand and the bread of the presence, the altar and the outer and inner courts, the holy place and the most holy place, the curtain and all the utensils, the Ark of the Covenant. And we're talking about the temple, we're talking about the tabernacle, and when we're talking about these things, we're talking about God's presence with his people. The God whose cosmic abode is in the heavens and who calls the earth his footstool. The God who created this world in Christ to be his dwelling place with man and appointed Adam to be his priest to image him for the entire creation. But today's lesson is less an Old Testament history, of course, than it is a study of the tabernacle and the temple fulfilled in Christ. And again, that's not in metaphoric ways, not just by analogy or figurative ways, but in real actual incarnated and applied ways for our benefit. For you, dear friend in Christ, for you to know your sin, to know your Savior, to drive you to despair of yourself and drive you to Jesus as the doctor for what ails you. In other words, the Lord deals with you just as he dealt with people of all generations, as he did a generation ago and a hundred generations ago and more. He deals with you with his means in his temple, in his house. And so the first scripture to set the stage on this is Jesus nailing the truth of it in John chapter 2. We read together. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? This is the second temple uh, uh, revised, right, under Herod in John chapter 2. Read again. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, 
his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. We're not talking about bricks and stone with Jesus. We're not talking about a a closed system or a building. We're talking about his body. A dead one and a raised one. As the entire book of Hebrews in the New Testament talks about, it's not just Jesus in one role as priest or as victim, as sacrifice, or even Jesus as the torn curtain or basin or anything like that. We're talking about the whole lot, the entire priesthood, the entire temple. It's all embodied in one body. It's all embodied in the one Jesus Christ. And so it is with today's topic, the bronze basin. We hear the the tabernacle construction details and commands uh, that the Lord gave to Moses and the Israelites in the book of Exodus, chapter 30. The Lord said to Moses, you shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. Something a little different than all the rest of the elements that we've seen in the tabernacle so far. There's no specific measurements to this. I don't know how big it was. It had to be small enough to fit in the tabernacle, uh, a complex uh, in that court uh, behind the altar before you get to the holy place. But we don't have inches, feet, meters, or cubits, which is the uh, favorite measurement of, of the scripture. I don't know what a cubit is exactly. It's about a foot and a half. But we don't even know the measurements of this. I think pi ended up in there somewhere as they were trying to figure out the, the circle of the, of the outer rim. But then it goes on, Exodus chapter 30, when they go into the tent of meeting, this is Aaron and his sons, the priests, or when they come near the altar to minister... To burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water. And that's a comfort for us, knowing that if you're going to prepare food, you're actually going to wash your hands, right? This is good. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. Okay. So we have a a reason. It's not so that we can stop the spread of bacteria. It's because the Lord will kill you if you don't do this, okay? They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. Imagine you were a priest. This is, I think, the the important bit of understanding tabernacle. Because not everybody got to go and journey through all of the tabernacle every day. There were no field trips to go and check out what's going on behind the curtain, especially, right? Right? You've got to imagine yourself as one of those sons of Aaron, one of the Levites, one of the, 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 the priestly community who is in charge of dishing out the goods, distributing communion with God and his people the way that God communes with the entire world. You have to imagine yourself as part of the priesthood. And so what do you see? I don't know how well that shows up because it's very bright because of standard time change. Uh, you got the eastern gate and you walk in to this rectangular complex and the first thing that you see is the altar with the fire on it. Maybe smell some barbecue. You might see animals. You might hear and smell a lot of things. And then that tent complex, that tabernacle proper with all the curtains around it. 
all the linens and the beaver skins and all that jazz with the holy place and the most holy place, between the altar and that tabernacle, what you have is the bronze basin. So if you're a priest, you enter the tabernacle and as you come away from that entrance to the tent of meeting, you had to make sacrifice for your own sin. And why do you have to do that? You're making sacrifice for your own sin because you as a priest, part of that priesthood, you're a sinful person making your sacrifice so that then you can properly, ceremonially, ritually, purely perform sacrifices for the sake of others. You've got to deal with your own sin even before you deal with anyone else's. And then you had to wash the bronze basin before and after everyone else's sacrifice that you administer. You had to wash hands and feet before performing functions in the holy place, in the actual tent. And why? Lest you die. You have to wash lest you die. That's sobering. You had to wash because things get dirty, and it's practical to do so. But that's not what's going on here. It's not just some mere bath. They had to wash because that's what the Lord commands. And what gets ingrained in the senses of the priesthood and the individual priests as practitioners of these holy acts, the sense of touch, the smell, the hearing, the the sight, what gets ingrained in the senses of the observers, the person bringing sacrifice, the person catching a glimpse through that eastern gate of the tabernacle over and over again, is that God's presence is all about sacrifice and ritual purity, cleaning up the mess we make of ourselves, cleaning up the mess that the world makes of us, our biology makes of us. It's the space, it's the place that the Lord has provided. He provides it for us, to bring us to his glory. That's the the, the bright stuff at the end of the tent, his glory, his chavod, Yahweh, right? The glory. God's presence is all about sacrifice and ritual purity. The space and place that he uses to bring us to his glory, clean, and pure, and washed, set apart, and holy before a holy God. This is the image of how it evolved into Solomon's temple. It wasn't just one bronze basin about this size where the priests would dip their hands and wash their feet. It turned into a a great bronze sea uh, of 12,000 gallons capacity. I don't know how many cubits that is either. But that, that immense tabernacle and temple complex as it evolves there, we need to fast forward from there to Christ. It's fulfillment in Christ, whose body was sacrificed not on a bronze altar, but on a wooden cross for the atonement of the entire world. The entire world is atoned. The entire world is saved in Christ. And that includes you, dear friend, in Christ. The image of God that priest Adam forsook in his own black mass at the fall is restored in the image of Christ, the one who did not stay dead 
but rose again. And there's the good news for us. The image of Christ that you bear, you bear Christ's image by trusting his sacrifice for you. You bear Christ's image by trusting his saving work for you. We're not talking any longer about a priesthood that offers a morning and evening sacrifice every single day. Bulls and rams constantly slaughtered and burned and priests constantly washing at a smaller basin or at this great sea, ritually cleaning but still leaving stained. Dear friend in Christ, we're talking about a new priesthood, as Peter reminds us. I ask you to imagine yourself as part of the priesthood of ancient Israel. Now it's not imagination. This is reality. Declare this with me, as Peter said to us 2,000 years ago. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He goes on, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The image of Christ is restored in you as a priest in this priesthood. And I'm not talking about somebody who's been specially ordained to you know, wear a collar and do this sort of ministry that like, I'm doing right now and proclaiming God's word as a priest, a pastor, a minister. I'm not saying that it's all just a bunch of individual priests with all of our own individual ministries. So I, you know, I've got the ministry of leadership and you've got the ministry of mowing the lawn or something like that at a church. Yeah, I'm the preschool minister. I'm not talking about that. That's, that's not how the scripture here is talking It's talking about how we're priests together in a priesthood. We're not individually priests. We're priests in a hood. All right? This is the priesthood. We are priests in the hood. And this priesthood, all of us together, we're bearing the image of Christ. We're the priesthood that has been washed by one Lord in one faith, in one baptism. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, a baptism that our own great high priest underwent himself first so that he could be like us in every way, and now a baptism that is a means for him to save us. Baptism now saves you, dear friend in Christ, lest you die. Saves us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Spirit. First Peter chapter 3, verse 21, put it to memory. Baptism now saves you. It's not the uh, washing of dirt from the body. It's not just a mere bath. It's the pledge of a good conscience before God. It saves you through the resurrection of Christ, this body that didn't stay dead but rose again. Tear down this temple, and I will build it again in three days. This baptism saves Not because of righteous works we have done, but because of God's mercy, as Titus chapter 3 proclaims. Put it into your memory. It saves us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, generously, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that we, this priesthood, could be co-heirs with Christ, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. Insist on it. This baptism saves. 
It's that purity that God gave the priesthood. It's that purity that gave the priesthood confidence in Moses' day and throughout the history of Israel to discharge their duty before the Lord every day in the tabernacle. Dear friend in Christ, it's that same purity that gives us the royal priesthood of God, imaging Christ for a fallen creation, a redeemed world. It gives us the royal priesthood, us priests in the hood, the confidence to discharge our duties before the Lord today. Daily washed, daily pure. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Such is the generation of all who fear him. Do you have clean hands? You do. And with this promise for you, you are bronze basin people who have something bigger, something better, something not in shadows of what was to come, but the real deal, the means, the hidden God revealed in, with, and under something just as simple, real water, but real water with a real word of blessing that calls you his own, names you with his name, grants you life and salvation. You are clean, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Your bodies washed with pure water. You are clean to serve him because you have been washed. You have been sanctified. You, the church, the royal priesthood. Read this together, Ephesians chapter 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. One final thought. Wouldn't it be cool if when Jesus was washing his disciples' feet in John chapter 13, he had the towel around his waist and he had a basin of water. Wouldn't it be cool if that were a bronze basin? It doesn't say that it was, but I think it would have been a nice thing for Jesus to have a chuckle over afterwards. After all, it was a pretty tough Thursday for him. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Go with this promise. You were washed. You were sanctified. You are a baptized believer. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, draw us back to the baptism that you have bestowed on us, giving us your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Grant us your Holy Spirit that as we walk into this world of temptation, that we draw our comfort and confidence in the identity that you have given us as people who have been washed, who have been sanctified, set apart, made holy, and justified by you, because you were the one who saved us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus. This is such a wonderful reminder and gracious promise and a mighty calling to new life in Jesus, and this now sends us into the rest of our week. 
So until we are again together next Wednesday, the peace of Christ be with you. Amen.